0: Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am the host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal, all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I am Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, raising cyber-ethical kids, and cyber-traps for expecting moms and dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, cyber-safety, and today, hacking and all things related to cybersecurity. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cyber Traps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing, media, professional training, and public advocacy.
1: And it's delightful to be able to say that that is officially a true statement. Yes,
0: <laughs> it is. It's very, very exciting.
1: It is our pleasure to give our thanks to Buoyancy Digital for being the proud inaugural mission partner for the Cybertraps podcast series, a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. Buoyancy was founded by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen $300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms, for IAB, Google, and Bing-accredited brand and audience-safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, reach out to Scott Rabinowitz at Scott R. Media on LinkedIn or visit BuoyancyDigital.com. Greetings, Jethro. Well, hello, Fred. Who do we have today? We have the pleasure of having... Gentleman from France, I believe our first guest from France, which is very exciting, Philippe Humeau. He graduated in 1999 as IT security engineer from EPITA in Paris, France. He founded his first company right after school and dedicated it to red team penetration testing and high security hosting, all of which I hope he explains to us. He was also deeply involved in Magento's community creation and animation in France, and is versed into e-commerce, having written four books on the topic. After selling his first company, MBS System, his eternal crushes for cybersecurity and entrepreneurship led him to create a new company in 2020. CrowdSec was born an open source software editor behind the eponymous massively multiplayer firewall, leveraging both IP behavior and reputation to create a community and tackle the mass scale hacking problem. And I will say, Jethro, that this is a a perfect guest for this podcast because we've been going at the issues of cybersecurity and hacking for some time now, and I think that this is a really innovative approach, and it's going to be good to hear about it. So, Philippe, welcome to the show.
2: Hello, Jethro and Frederic. Thank you
1: for having me. Uh, It's a real pleasure, Philippe. You obviously have a really impressive background in terms of dealing with these issues, but in general, what drew you to the field of cybersecurity with the focus on hacking? How did you get started with this?
2: Oh, yeah, I, that's, that was because it was the, actually the funniest part in my engineering school. You know, Some guys were doing like development software and stuff. Some others were doing AI, multimedia stuff. And I saw security. I was like, wow, what does it cover? It sounds so fun. And I was like... We can do defensive security and we can do offensive security you're kidding me and there was not much of a low background by then you know in france at least so we could kind of train ourselves on real target let's put it like this so always particularly we were not stealing anything but it was about like you know breaching in another university saying hello to the girl that you saw last time in a party and so on you didn't have the name but all of a sudden, you had our name, and more than that. So real-world applications. is <laughs> what we're talking about. <laughs> so it was a lot of fun, and, uh, and a very fascinating topic to me. You know, internet was barely born. During my study, I saw Google rising like, as a new alternative to AltaVista, which was the uh, settled search engine by then. So, you know, it was uncovering a lot of things for me, and it was really fun. Well, I love
0: the, uh, the approach of something that is actually applicable, you know, that you, it's funny how, you know, guys in college want to meet girls and that's where many ideas come from. And it's, it's, it's evolved from there into, into what you have now, but let's, let's still take a step back a little bit and talk about hacking overall. We hear about ransomware attacks and other things that people are doing to get into people's systems and, and I have a, a somewhat funny story, but also very shocking story to me who's you know trying to be secure here in my own home. And uh, last Saturday night we were eating dinner and all of a sudden uh, we heard this really loud music that was definitely not our music playing on our speaker in our house. And what we figured out was that this speaker that is not connected to Wi-Fi, uh, it does have a Bluetooth connection and the Bluetooth connection is open and somebody just connected to it thinking it was theirs. And they were across the street <laughs> having a little party and they kept turning it up because they couldn't hear the music very well. <laughs> and it, so it was max volume in our house. And because we've been doing this show and talking about hacking, I was super paranoid that we were like, we were under attack. And really, it was a, quite a simple solution when I figured it out. But my senses are alerted, but how big of a problem is hacking around the globe for normal people to worry about?
2: Well, you could consider this on a, you know, economical standpoint. For example, if you think about hacking globally, it's a GDP of a small country, actually not so small country, it would be the GDP of the fourth or fifth biggest country in the world. So There's a heap of money on the table, uh, a huge heap of money. So the crime is now uh, organized, industrialized, affiliated. Everything you see like is the normal web, like people working together, people affiliating, people giving business to one another or reusing some components of others. It's exactly the same thing under the curtain. So the, the scene, as we call it, has been organizing itself a lot lately. It's controlled massively by mafia, mafias or governments or both sometimes. Sometimes it's hard to say where is the limit in between the two. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's professional, definitely. And what you lived through your Bluetooth uh, uh, speaker is an illustration of something really worrying. It's uh, wireless opens a brand new era of anonymity. Because if you want to be untraceable and you want to do something bad, you would just break through the next door uh, wifi system, which is usually super easy, and by, there are tons of them all around the world. And you know, pretend that your attack are coming from the next door police station. And then once you've done your maleficent uh, things, you will rip off your uh, tier, your your disk hard disk drive apart and send everything into uh, the next by river. And with this air gap, what we call an air gap, is like going through the waves, um, you won't be traceable at all.
1: There's actually, Philippe, a term that is used for a practice in the United States. I don't know if there's a French equivalent, but it's called war driving. And the basic concept of war driving are people who cruise through neighborhoods looking for open or weak Wi-Fi systems and then they'll sit outside the house and they'll download whatever pirated content they want or contraband material, and then they just disappear. And the whole thing, by the way, is based on War Games, the dialing uh, app or dialing program that was used in that movie. So it's the same basic concept. But what you're really getting at is this, this element of untraceability. And potentially, if police are doing an investigation into the content that's been downloaded... They will go to that home and they will look at that home as a potential suspect. This has actually popped up in some of the computer forensics work I do. Uh, so it can be a real risk for people if they don't take care of their Wi Fi system.
2: Yeah. And I, I love the work you're doing, guys, because education is key in security. You know, this next, this new generation will live 100% fully uh, in a digital manner. We already do ourselves. You know, we're hyper-connected in every way. But this next generation, they will live through, like from being born to their death, they will know about digital era all the way down. Their life will be digitalized A to Z. So they need to know about it. And you know, speaking about the world drive, the Wardrive Drive is, is something cool, but I saw once uh, in US, in Las Vegas, in DEF CON, I remember, something amazing. Some guys, they were doing a, a conference. So it's a security conference, but for people that are a bit high, you know, it's really fun. They have really crazy stuff sometimes. And a group of, of researchers were like, okay, get out of this ballroom in the Caesar Palace, it's huge, huh? uh, and come with us on the roof. And like, you can empty like 3,000 seats and go on the roof Yeah, so all the security guys were like, go like this, like this, and we are on the roof of the Caesar Palace, and like, what are you doing with this rocket, guys? Is it even legal somehow? Do you have like flight authorization from FAA or whomever you have to ask? And they're like, no worries about that, just look at the monitor, and you're like, you see a big TV screen, and they're like, there's a map of Las Vegas, and the guy fires the stuff, so the, the rocket blasts off, go into the sky, and release some kind of payload that goes down slowly. And the stuff was mapping in real time all the access point of Las Vegas seen from above. And i like, wow, that's next-gen world driving, guys. <laughs> and you know what? The first interested person in the audience was a military. <laughs> that is a really cool story. I've been
1: to Vegas a few times. I will say I've never been to the roof of Caesar's <laughs> Palace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I will say I'm afraid to go to DefCon uh, for fear that I personally would be hacked uh, just for fun. I, if I did go, I would go with
1: no technology at all. Talk about lamb amongst the wolves. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Even no like kidding. this,
2: you can do crazy stuff in security. You look at it like this way. I had my guys. We talked about red team Pentest, and maybe we'll be back to this later on. But it consists in breaching into places. With more or less a white card, right? The guy says you are not allowed to do this, this, and this, but pretty much everything else is allowed. And one day we tried something. It's actually my CTO who did it with a friend of his. They were in an hotel in hotel in Ireland, there to validate a platform for security for um, of a platform for uh, poker, right? And so the guy was sitting in and being bored to death in the lobby, and they were like, "Okay, let's hack the hotel," like but without anything, like with nothing. We drop the laptop, we drop the phone, we drop everything, even the watch. You don't have anything on you, and we have to hack the hotel, how would you do it? So you start thinking, and they're like, okay, can we use the remote? What remote? The TV remote. Okay, that's allowed. TV remote, like everyone has a TV remote, that's fine. And you know, in the video of hotels, you have a search bar where you can input the name of the movie you want to see. And this search bar, everywhere are usually powered by web uh, pages behind. And you can inject some code here, like bad code. Like It's called SQL injection. And the stuff guide an indigestion, uh, cannot digest what you send, and basically is granting you superpowers over uh, the system behind. So they quickly found a SQL injection and they remap all the movies, all the porn movies onto Disney movies thinking to themselves that nobody's going to go up front to, you know, downstairs and say, oh my God, I couldn't have my porn movie, but I had a uh, white snow uh, instead, you know, and they just did it with a remote.
1: <laughs> it is really scary stuff, Philippe. I, you know, we, we could tell, war stories, as it were, all afternoon about this stuff. And I, I'm actually deeply disturbed. I'll never look at a hotel TV remote quite the same way. But I think that the question that I have for you is obviously you're, you're working on a new project. And I'm really curious to better understand what the relationship is between open source work and cybersecurity and and IP addresses. So if you don't mind, kind of walk us through your project and, and give us a little bit of background on it.
2: At the core of it is a concept that is the following. Big companies are trying to defend themselves with like heaps of monies. And they fail massively, as we can see. You know, they get compromised, they leak data, and they lose money and all. So it means a solution is not like with a super soldier that would kill an army uh, all by himself. Like it doesn't work. It just works in Hollywood movies. So in real life, if you want to tackle an army, you have to have a bigger army. That's pretty much it, you know. So hacking is organized like armies are. You know, there are ranks, there are groups, they are specialized and so on. So the way we see it, we have to have a bigger army. And as a matter of fact, there are more good intended people than wrongly intended people. So what we say to everyone is like, let's join hands together and work together because we will outnumber them and we will outgun them because we are more numerous, willing to have an internet safe and steady for the business than to wreak uh, havoc all around the place and steal everyone. So there's only one real vulnerability for hackers. They hate being... uh, Uh, woken up by FBI at 6 a.m. in the morning, right? Because as we all know, they are not morning people, right? They are night owls. So what they do is they shelter their activities. They hide it behind behind IPs, behind other IP addresses, not their own, because it would dox them. It would tell the FBI, "Let go this way. You will find your hacker. So what they do is they borrow IPs or they steal one uh, and some, and usually a lot. And they, they hide the activities. What we are doing here is we are peeling the onion. We are burning those IPs one by one. And trust me, in the end, we are not the one crying.
0: Let me see if I understand that correctly. What you're experiencing is that you, you see the bad IP addresses that are coming. And the IP address identifies what device you're using, where you are in the world. And you can, you can track that and figure out where somebody is. So when they use somebody else's, you're cutting that off and saying this IP address is is now bad and we know that. And it sounds like the most important thing you're doing is sharing and communicating that at large so that everybody knows if you see something from this IP address, it is likely nefarious and not, not a good place to come from.
2: Yeah, it's at the, at the very beginning, what we do is a behavior engine. So we look in the logs, logs are journals where the machines are writing down what they do, you know, how they interacted with the people. And in the logs, there is gold. What happened? Pretty much everything's speed logged nowadays, like planes, your cars, your phone, server, and services, obviously. So we look at the dogs, and we identify bad behaviors, like if someone is trying to do credit card skimming, or like having very small amount of money to validate credit card numbers that are stolen, or if someone is trying to scan your website, or scan your password, or things like this. So once we identify this wrong uh, uh, behavior, then we block them. Yes of way of blocking them but let's just assume we block them and then you're right we share this IP with everyone across our community saying this IP ABCD had a bad behavior it it aggressed uh, your neighbor so protect yourself against this you can see it like uh, internet neighborhood watch.
0: Yeah that's that's really fascinating it seems it seems very uh, simple like the idea of publishing this But historically, hackers haven't liked to share, even ethical hackers haven't liked to share information. How are you getting over that hurdle of them sharing what they're learning, what they're finding out, what they're experiencing, when typically that's been something they've kept pretty close to the chest?
2: Yeah, it's a trade-off here. Um, the thing is, we provide an exceptional, uh, very, very good first line of defense for free. It's open source. It's free. There's no shenanigans. You can look into the code. There's no backdoor. It doesn't come from any, uh, anywhere uh, wrong. Uh, we are truly serious about what we release, and everyone can see it. You can protect yourself for free. Now, the deal is the following. If you share with us the spottings you have, then we'll share back with you the IPs that are dangerous to you. If you don't share with us, you just use the behavior engine and protect yourself locally, that's fine by us, but you don't get the goodie, the goodie being the community sightings. So it's up to you to decide whether the community sightings are worth sharing what you see or not. And if you think about it, it's exactly what Waze did, right? They are sharing all together so that everyone is safer on the road. So for the average consumer, Philippe, how how do they go about getting
1: involved in this? What's what's the logistics of working with you guys?
2: Well, the average consumer, if you mean by that uh, uh, B2C, like people in the house, they can, if they are a bit tech savvy, they can use it easily in their Windows or Linux, rather Linux environment. What we are doing to address this population and specifically the one uh, remote working, working from home, right? We are doing a small box that has two ports, uh, two Ethernet ports and costs something like 25 bucks, right? Uh, It's something you can buy from AliExpress or something like this. And inside we embed uh, all the critical things you need to have to protect your privacy home. And it will be for free online. You just have an SD card to flash and you can check uh, check it uh, and it will protect your home and your home work as you do it. Now, the real market we're targeting are exposed IP, meaning people that are exposing services and servers over the internet directly, which is unlikely to be your case at home because you have a box doing this job for you to protect you, more or less, right? So this is the target we have, this uh, 3.7 billion IPs in, uh, in the IPv4 space and more and more IPs in IPv6 that is coming with 5G and, and all.
0: So basically uh, someone can plug that little box in and that will provide all the all the blocking that you would need and, and all that. So that as that community is sharing those things, that'll be updated automatically and people will be able to be protected. So a, a lot of people don't aren't broadcasting their IPs at home, but there are some specific ways that they are because pretty much any smart thing that you have in your home is um, that you can control from out of your home, you have to broadcast your IP to be able to do that, right? So anybody who can open their garage door as they're coming home or see who's at the door when they're not at home, all those people are potentially vulnerable to to something because their IP addresses are exposed to that point, right?
2: Yes, and there are two ways we can help them as well. The first thing is we're working with telco operators, right, telecom operators, to integrate the system into the box. So they're delivering your box, a router, and we can integrate with this router. So we're working, it's early days, but we're working with them to do, to do so. So that way you don't have to worry at all. It's just done by design. Um, the other way you can do it and the other way we are thinking about it, I'm totally acquired to what you just said, like this home automation thing. It's super important. I love it in my home. I have a lot of things like this. And um, What I find out is like, those communities like Home Assistant or GDOM or Domotics or things like this, they are not extremely security focused. Not that they don't care. It's just they are not super savvy in it. So what we are uh, up to is to create plugins for those software directly so that they consume and use CrowdSec without any burden. They just have to click up, add this plugin, and that's done. This is a no setup thing. like A bit like... Adguard, you're probably familiar with Adguard, right? Is the thing that avoid you to being tracked everywhere and be spammed with advertisement,
1: right? Or ad blocker or whatever your plugin of choice is. One of the things, Philippe, that I ran across when I was doing cybertraps for expecting moms and dads is that in the context of smart home devices, so many people were buying things that, for instance, were being made in China, and There was a real issue there in terms of the security of those devices. And I think one of the challenges that we all face, and you're in a good position to address this, is how we make this as easy as possible for the end user. Because one of the real challenges, for instance, with baby monitors and webcams and things like that, is that people don't clean up the default Wi-Fi passwords, which leaves them exposed to whoever's surfing you know, the net looking for that stuff. So what are your thoughts on
2: that? Well, it's not even just them. At the very core of the problem, we have an extremely strong country in production. You know, you cannot, no one can manufacture a camera, a baby, a monitor, whatever, at the price Chinese can. It's impossible, nearly. So maybe some president will come with a solution, but it's not tomorrow. So what (laughs) we see is that everything is produced there. And they are bad. They are as bad as doing firmware. As they are good at doing hardware. So you, you cannot beat them on hardware. But when it comes to firmware, they just cut paste things. They, they cut paste code that come from anywhere across, and they are not checking the security at all. I, I mean, it's not even a concern for them. Right. Uh, I'm not saying it's made on purpose, but at least it's, it's at very least it's loud. It's loose. It's it's not good. So the way I see it is we should all be concerned with what firmware we are running on those platforms. We should be able to update them. We should be able to tweak them. We should be able to have like these plugins to secure ourselves. One of our mission also is since it's free, those guys can integrate the software inside their camera if they want. It's for free. They don't have to do anything. And they'll be part of a network and protect themselves. So, We cannot force them to do so, but we have like um, partnership and alliances that are working on that, specifically with camera manufacturers, because they are the first line where we could progress a lot on this. But yeah, you have to be concerned with your own security, with your home security, with your family security, and you have to know what it implies when you give a kid uh, some device in their hands, you know, a smart device. That's absolutely uh, necessary for your own security and for his security. We
1: could do a whole nother show with you, Philippe, just on that one topic, because that is so central to the work that we're doing. Um, let's talk a little bit more, though, about CrowdSec. I mean, one of the things that that you mentioned when we were doing the show prep is the question of whether or not somebody could break this reputation, crowdsourced approach to internet security. What exactly do you mean by that? And and what do people need to think about
2: I'll take again um, a comparison with Waze because it's super fun. We have some small villages in France and some smaller highways than in America, right? Even though I've been to Los Angeles and I saw like 16 ways highways being crowded, but that's another story. So, <laughs> you know, Waze says to those people that are all coming back from holidays at the same time, you should go through this village because it's shorter than waiting in the queue, Right. But those villages, they didn't ask for anything. And they saw like billions of cars passing by. And they were super upset. So what they started to do is take a lot of uh, phones, put ways on it, and just drop them in the village, in a place, uh, so that it shows that everyone is stuck there. And that you cannot go through because the mobiles are not moving, right? <laughs> Dude, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's brilliant. But that's poisoning of a network. Because the guys are sending false information, tricking, luring ways into thinking that there's a traffic jam, well, there is no <laughs> So it's exactly the same problem we have. We have a crowd around ourselves. Some are okay and really uh, well-intended, and some are not. Maybe 5% of them are wrongly intended, and they want to harm the process. They want to harm the credibility of the information we are delivering. So it narrows down to this problem. How do you treat signals coming to you some are, are right and some are wrong, and you have to filter them. And so you have to find the proper way of saying, no, IP, A, B, C, D is not bad. It's a person that reports I, IP, A, B, C, D that is bad. How do you do that then? How do you make
0: that determination that it's the person and not the IP address? And how do you do it in a way that, is, that doesn't take thousands of man hours to figure out?
2: There are, this, these are known problems. They are narrowed down to three main known problems. How do we do it? It's like we give people that are entering into the network a quarantine time of six months. So meaning before six months, we would not listen to you, whatever you say, okay? We are, con- so we are considering you. So if you say something that has been also reported by someone else, you will be credited of a bit of trust, right? Up until at some point you reach trust rank one, that is the highest you can reach in our network. We trust you because you made consistent, accurate, and timely report all the way down for six months in a row, meaning you're trustable. Now think about the case of a very determined hacker that would like spawn 3000 machines and start spamming good signals at first, and then after six months, turn rogue. Well, we would see that this cohort, this subgroup of IPs that we re- register pretty much in the same times are the only ones seeing the events that they are reporting, which is very very strange. So we probably lose a lot of uh, trust. The next thing we have is we are trust rank zero ourselves. So we are we are running a bit of honeypots. Those are machines that say attack me, attack me, attack me. And when uh, pirates are attacking them, they are reporting. Oh, I've been attacked. Right. So it's as simple as as that. And they are seeing signals as well as well. So they can validate other signals, other providers of signals, and credit you with TrustRank. The next level we have is a white list of IPs that you are not at liberty to block whatever happens. Think, for example, uh, Microsoft updates, Akamai core IPs, Google Boat, Google Mail, or whatever. Because you could consider that Google Boat is a bit aggressive, right? It's scanning your website super quickly, but it's its job, and it doesn't have time to spend a year on your website. So that's normal. So you're not at liberty of blocking them. And if you try to do so, we'll probably consider that you're either wrongly intended or it's a false positive, simple as it is. But we will never put the IP of Googlebot into a block list. And then last but not least, we have settings, tweaks, you know, like we say, for example, if that many amount of violations happens in less than a minute, say, then it's an alert. But the hacker are, are learning this, right? So, they see that the threshold is something like seven attempts or eight attempts. So, if it's eight attempts, for example, they will make it so that they will use more IPs but are on seven attempts. So, they would be flying just below the radar, right? So, what we do to avoid this is we are learning from the logs we are getting in our data lake, which is quite huge for now already, and we are saying, okay, those IPs are distributing the work that they usually did one by one, They are spreading it on a larger crowd, or they are always passing by 15 minutes across, or they are acting as a cohort. So we know they're working together so we can preemptively block them. Philippe,
1: it seems to me in listening to uh, the way in which you're handling this, that you're really previewing two significant developments in technology one of which is the growing need for artificial intelligence to handle this type of multivariant situation where you've got a huge number of inputs and behaviors that you need to balance off of each other. And then the other trend, which is something that Jethro and I have talked about with some other guests, is this growing importance of the concept of social credit, which is essentially the system that you're applying with respect to the ratings and, you know, I assume with respect to ways, certainly with Airbnb, Uber, places like that, a lot of your ability to use those services hinges on the feedback that you've been given by various elements of the system. Um, how's that playing out in terms of CrowdSec? Uh,
2: you're 100% right. We are facing the same problem, actually, as they all do somehow. We have to solve it all together. But there's a major important factor here. We're here to cripple massively the hacking activity. This is really our goal, our mission. But I don't mean that we should be right 100% time. Yes, you heard me right. Maybe sometimes the solution will let someone go through. or we'll let an attack you know, unseen or unnoticed. It's not that we don't want to. It's just by trying to be 100% accurate, you're actually hindering your own effort. Because if you try to be 100% accurate, it's very likely that you will trigger false positive and lower the trust in your solution. So what we say is like, we are a 99% solution, an extremely robust first free line of defense. We by all means never pretended to be a perfect one. So, but by doing this and by joining hands, we're stronger than any system in the world. We already are 10,000. Meaning we are probably the biggest Honeypot network, network ever uh, so far. we know. And it's, it's and counting. We, have, we expect to be 100,000 between December 2021 and uh, July 2022. And size matter here. The largest you are, the best you can accurately pinpoint who is a proper or bad actor.
0: Yeah, that seems really interesting. And I, I like the approach that you're taking. And on your on your third point about, you know, automating and and paying attention to how many times a a cohort is attacking or whatever, anytime you do that, you will have people who just design their software to attack differently, right? So that is a never-ending battle that you, it seems, have to have a human paying attention to, whereas some of the other things you can automate a lot more. How much does that automation and AI work into that compared to you know, how much hands-on people looking at it you need to see? And as you get larger, will it become more difficult for people to see things because they can't possibly look at all that data at once as effectively as a computer can?
2: Yeah, that's why this is a battle we gave up right away. You know, we are not fighting on that ground at all. So everything is automated. And we expect to be 35 to 40 maximum in the company, already because I cannot handle more people than that. I'm not good at that. Uh, so we're not going to have human validating signals ever. What we will do though, is by getting a larger crowd, is having more signals flowing and more things to learn from with AI, but also with through our algorithm. And this is where, uh, if you a heard of IPs reporting to you, you get kind of a real-time attack map of hacking over the internet. And that's super precious because then you can deduce things. You can block massively instead of blocking totally or uh, accurately or pinpointing, uh, headshotting someone. What I mean here is like a a good hacker or a good group of hackers, they are owning thousands of IPs, right? And they are very efficient because they are using and leveraging 1,000, a, a 2,000, 10,000 of IPs, right? But if we cripple their capacity down to, I don't know, 10 IPs, or if we slow down their operation so badly because they have to go below the threshold not to be seen, we will massively lower the pressure on the system, allowing SecOps and DevOps to take over the problem, to, you know, to breathe a bit and be able to react properly. And also what we are doing for them is we are eliminating all the background noise. I mean, the background noise is like something, one IP over the internet is scanned a thousand times per day, literally. Okay, quote me on that one. I checked myself. And that's the minimum, right? You do nothing, your IP is scanned a thousand times a day. This is background noise. This is not something that is extremely dangerous or nefarious to you. But what we can tell with the size of our network is that this specific signal we saw it only for you or only for a very few number of people that are specifically banks. This is dangerous. This you should look and pay attention to. And by removing 99% of the noise, we allow the SecOps to just focus on what matters.
1: What I hear you not so much hinting at, but at least alluding to is that the work that you guys are doing is potentially useful in the international political realm in the sense that there are definitely nation states who are galvanized to try to use these techniques to take down various targets. For instance, let's just say, oh, a pipeline in the eastern United States that might supply a large amount of gas or something along those lines. So obviously I'm not going to ask you to go too deeply into this, but I would assume that in the, in the work that you're doing, the, the concern about nation-state involvement must arise.
2: It does. And what we see very funnily is that a lot of IPs that are, are rogue are constantly rogue. They are not just borrowed IPs or temporarily compromised IPs. Some IPs we've seen for 125 days in a row, and not just one IP. All the IP group That is belonging to what we call an autonomous system. So long story short, it's an organization that controls a certain amount of IPs. And those IPs, all of those IPs, belong to the same uh, nation state. And it's been rogue for more than 120 days, meaning it's probably constantly rogue, not just on a temporary basis. And this is where we also overestimate our enemy. I mean, most of them, they got very quietly used to the fact that nobody is really hindering their operations. What we're coming up to here is like this system is automated. And if your IPs are blacklisted, there are good reasons for that. And if you have to change your IPs or your behavior being a nation state and remove a whole group of IPs, not being able to use them anymore, well, we slowed meaningfully your operations. And you will have to go out, find new IPs, and probably expose yourself more. Maybe giving FBI or other authorities opportunities to catch you. So we are stripping, you know, we are putting those guys naked in the street as much as we can. So they don't like it. And uh, it's also helping all the good forces around the internet to defend everyone.
0: Yeah, this is incredibly fascinating to me. And as we close, I think, uh, could we bring it down to a consumer level? And where should a consumer um, get started with protecting themselves?
2: That's a very, very good uh, question. What I do already, first of all, I would recommend people to have a Linux box at home that would filter the traffic. I know you have to dive into it. It's going to take maybe a weekend for you if you don't know about it. There are tons of great resources and tutorials and things already done for you um, to just filter out your network and not just let everything in and out in a really uh, unorganized fashion. Second thing is I would use and I do use things like AdGuard or uh, pi hole and stuff like that that are filtering uh, a lot of noise, meaning advertisement, cookies and stuff. Uh, you really have everybody, but in the United States, it's really important that you guys you know, raise the awareness of what is uh, personal data. In Europe, we are way more sensitive to this. Already, we have a framework for, for that. But in the U.S., it's terrible. I mean, the majors have been ripping you off your data and what you do and how you do it and when and where constantly. And it's so, uh, so much of a pattern that people don't even realize it anymore. You know, when WhatsApp is saying, accept this to go on, people just click blindly on accept. They don't read the lines, right? It's, it's not WhatsApp specifically. It's every, every major. So be aware already. Also, there are tools that allow you to decline every cookie automatically, extensions of your brother's. Uh, browser systems. So Chrome and Firefox and Safari, they offer these things to get a bit more privacy, right? Um, What I would put also in this, what could I put? Uh, I use also a DNS that is privacy protecting, like OpenDNS or AdGuard DNS, you know, things like the security uh, uh, DNS. Philippe,
1: have you heard of um, uh, Cloudflare's 1111? Uh, app that is available for iOS. I don't know if it's available on Android because um, I, I just use the iOS, but it does warp and warp plus as VPNs. And those are, I think, really useful. I would strongly recommend anybody who is working outside of the home or using a mobile device to make sure that they use a virtual private network, because that can go a long way to enhancing your protection And the other thing is for those of you who are using iPhones, the fact that the latest updates of iOS, I think 14.6 forward, gives you the ability to stop other apps from tracking your data from point to point across the internet. So you can at least begin to slow down the accumulation of data. That barn door has been open, as Philippe said, for a long time, but still. The, there's no question you europeans are much better at this than we are for a variety of different reasons
2: absolutely there are other tricks because you know uh, you caught me unprepared Jethro, because it's such a wide topic that there are so many things to advise uh so vpn obviously totally agreeing uh 1111 initiative is great you should use everyone mobile factor authentication multi-factor authentication right it could be a physical device it could be your mobile like google authenticator is doing a great job here really uh and that's a a pain in somewhere dark for hacker to to go around. It's really, really complicated. So make their life complicated for God's sake. Keep up to date as well. I mean, everything that is asking for an update, say yes. Mainly. I mean, there are maybe exceptions, but most of it say yes. uh, Because there are good reasons why editors are pushing updates. Because they want you to be secure and they don't want the name to be associated to a great disaster, waterloo of internet, right? Also something that I figured out that is like really uh, way in your house, disable systematically anything that is doing WPS. You know, those quick association when you click on a button and your Wi-Fi is open and the device is connecting to this Wi-Fi, those are riddled with security holes, right? It's terrible. It's the worst thing ever. That's why also Apple is not allowing you to do this. So disable all of this because... You know, with this allowed uh, and, and activated, you can really get the, the password of your network, uh, of your neighbor's network, right away. I don't mean like connecting to the network. I mean on top of that, getting the password for the Wi-Fi. So that's terrible because it, then you can reuse it anywhere. And some people are, are using really good password, but are betrayed by simply this. You know, by this crack. It's called crack Wi-Fi problem. Uh, So, And also, obviously, first line of defense, have decent, good passwords. And it's really easy. I'm going to give you today a tip that is super easy to remember. Have like three grades of password, the one you don't care about, right? That your garbage can. So if you do tuning on your car and you don't care about the forum being hacked or whatever, put this one. And use it, I don't know, take something you like. Maybe you're a drummer. Say you're a musician. So you, you take music underscore tuning. So you will always remember that the, the website password is music underscore tuning because it's a tuning website and you like music. And then for more private things, like your email, your uh, thing like this that, th- that do matter, what you do is like you take also a music thing, I don't know, maybe Mozart, right? And underscore underscore or, you know, whatever complex character you want to put uh, in between, uh, percent and things like this, and you use something else like, I don't know, saxophone or... Uh, Uh, Gmail is my mail or something like this. You you put words you like and you put in between some complicated characters. And then when you take extremely serious things like your bank account, your cryptocurrency, uh, private keys to whatever is your realm, use phrases, long phrases, right? It doesn't have even to include like specific characters. The fact that it's long is already extremely painful to break. So it's super easy and you can have like, Mozart, Beethoven, classical You will never forget that one. And then for each and every website or app you're consulting, just go with your uh, base password and put something like ampersand ampersand or dash dash or underscore underscore and the name of the website. It's extremely robust already. Okay, it's known. Everybody knows that it would be something dash dash Amazon. Yeah, but you don't know the first part. And the global thing is maybe 20 characters. So it's impossible to break but it's impossible to forget as well.
0: Yeah, that, that's great advice. And making it in a way that a lot of people have suggested password managers and auto-generating passwords that nobody will ever be able to guess. And what you provide is something that people can actually remember and pay attention to so that it's <laughs> it's difficult to get in, but it's also um, memorable so that they can they have a better chance of actually remembering it. So thank you for that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's something I've been using in my security trainings for companies I've been working with. And they adopted it, most of them. And I I mean, they're happy with it because you have a different password for pretty much everything. You will remember them, all of them. And what we get usually when the people are doing decent job on the, the server side, if ever they are breached, people get what we call hash, right? So meaning they have to be decoded. And the, the weakness here is, is if your password is part of a dictionary, it's dead. Forget about it. Numbers, dictionary words and stuff, they will not hold one minute, right? And I mean, not one second. But if you do this with like extended character sets and a larger number of characters, it's nearly unbreakable. So it's super easy to remember. It's unique per application you have. It could be different per realm, like private, private realm or professional one or so whatever. So it's, it's very um, modular, you know. Yeah,
1: <laughs>
2: I know. It's been kind of a day. I really,
1: really enjoyed digging into this cybersecurity <laughs> stuff with you, Philippe. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and to help us better understand what's going on out there.
2: My pleasure, entirely. I mean, it's the dedication of my life. I love it, you know, helping people out in security. And uh, I do think that all together we can tackle this problem and make Internet a safer place again. Well,
1: that's an excellent goal, and it is one to which Jethro and I are dedicated. So that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Down the road, we may even explore the difference between IPv4 and (laughs) IPv6. (laughs) Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of now truly international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast services. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic suggestions or questions or feedback.